family's diet, we went from, you know, barely surviving to thriving. So all my health issues just, you know, miraculously vanished, you know, like, you know, clear glowing skin, um, you know, a lot more energy and, you know, vitality, robust immune system. My son never got sick after that, you know, no more rounds of antibiotics. I started ovulating again, um, strong nails. Like, so, so basically all the boxes just in and of their own volition, just all started, you know, being ticked all just through changing our diet. And that's when I realized just how damn powerful food is and how food can be the most powerful medicine at our disposal. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, locally the Biripai people and all other First Nations people within Australia, this beautiful country where I'm blessed to live. I aim to participate in reconciliation and I support the sovereignty of the First Nations people. So thanks for tuning in to the Pollination Mamas podcast. If it's your first time, welcome. If you're back again, awesome and thank you. I aim to bring you collaborative conversations, cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe that ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. Hi everyone, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I've got a guest here, sort of local, I think I've said this before, if someone's in my state, New South Wales, I kind of think they're local. So I've got Sula here, creator of Star Anise Organics, I've been following for a little while on social media, she's in Sydney, Australia, Um, and Sula believes in combining the wisdom of ancestral diets with robust science to bring you clean, ethically sourced and traditionally prepared food to heal, nourish, satisfy, and delight. What a great combo of words. So Sula has a Greek Cypriot background, she had migrant parents, um, but growing up here in Australia, so grew up with beautiful, delicious, homemade, traditional food, which I can't wait to talk about as well. Um, and after experiencing her own health issues, like many of us, uh, and we'll talk about what that entailed, Sula turned to traditional whole foods to rebuild and repair hers and her family's health. Sula's currently running a broth bar and larder in Sydney and is a cooking instructor, has a cooking school, is a health coach, author and lifestyle blogger amongst other things. So thanks for being here Sula. My absolute pleasure, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to jump into all those juicy topics. What a great combo. I love when personal experience along with like um, your traditional background, your cultural background combines with a modern context of how we do this in a modern way and plus being a businesswoman, I love it all and how it all weaves to create this great picture. So I'd love to jump into how you define traditional foods. Yeah, so traditional foods for me are foods that our ancestors ate, the very food that we, our DNA, um, understands. So that the information that the food is giving us is such that our body recognises it and gets it and knows what to do with it. Now, um, it really depends on how far back you go. So, you know, Western A. Price, 
um, kind of focuses on from, say, pre-industrialization, so anything pre-100 years ago. And then, of course, if you go further back, the strict paleo movement is pre-agricultural revolution, so pre-10,000 years ago. So I'm not really strict, strict paleo. Uh, by and large, I do eat um, a paleolithic or, you know, primal diet, but I do incorporate um, some grains, um, you know, that are from the agricultural revolution when we started farming grains, as long as they are properly prepared, so soaked, sprouted or fermented. So basically, you know, this at its core, it's food that uh, our body recognises and what I say to people, if your great-great-grandmother didn't recognise it, don't eat it. So just eat what your great-great-grandmother ate and by and large you'll be fine. So the types of things we're talking about here are wild and pastured meats, wild and pastured organ meats, wild seafood, pastured eggs, pastured dairy, fermented foods and dr uh, drinks, fruit and veg, uh, properly prepared nuts, you know, and herbs and spices, unrefined salt, um, you know, healthy fats like olive oils, coconut oil and natural fats from animals. Those, you know, things should be making up the vast bulk of, our, of the human diet. That's what we are biologically designed to eat. So my nutritional philosophy is very simple. It's eat what we are biologically designed to eat. And that is universally an omnivorous diet, rich in nutrient-dense, whole, unprocessed foods. And then we take that and tweak that to suit each individual, to take account of each person's unique digestive issues, autoimmune issues and things like that. But, you know, by and large, in the vast majority of cases, if you just eat what we're biologically designed to eat, um, you know, we can grow and function properly, perform our best and reach our true potential at the end of the day. What more do we want, particularly as parents? We just want our kids to reach their true potential. And the fastest and easiest and most profound way of doing that is through just eating real food. Yeah, and it is so simple, like you say, but then you've got that modern context where sometimes you've got outside influences and are making that a bit trickier. And But I love that... So as adults, we may have been more negatively influenced by modern, the modern influence. So we've got more healing to do. So we have to do some healing and then get to a traditional, through a traditional diet, but then we might be able to broaden our traditional diet once we've done gut healing. With our kids, we've got this potential to sort of just bring them up on mostly this beautiful traditional whole food so they don't have to do that gut healing later, which is super exciting. And we get to school. So right. we in a bubble you know this is the thing like you do your best particularly in those first seven years where the body is the most plastic and the, and the most um greatest chance of epigenetic expression can happen in those first seven years but then they're going to go to kids parties they're going to go to well-meaning friends houses or you know in my case i got divorced and they'll go to their dad's house who's on a different path so there is a lot of surrender to what you cannot control because if you stress about that that stress is worse than the most toxic food. Yeah. So that's been part of my journey is just to control what I can control, make my house the high watermark, lead by example, educate. And then beyond that, if I can't control it, I just let it go and surrender to that. I really need to hear that. <laughs> I have five-year-old. 
modern world because if everybody like in a traditional society all ate the same thing they were all living in a way that was um in alignment with our you know our dna then it's not going to be an issue so wherever kids go and turn to they're just you know fueling their body with the very things that nourish them but in today's society we don't live that way and therein lies the challenge for people like us who want to be on uh, a more ancestral primal path because then, yeah. then you don't feel like an, a little bit like an outsider. So, you know, finding your tribe is really important, uh, but acknowledge and know that your children won't always be in that tribe. And children, uh, by their nature, love exploring and love exploring things that are different. Mm. So if something's in a box, packet, container, that they don't find at home, that's going to be so appealing to them. And even though you've educated them on the dangers of it, they're going to want to try it. They're going to want to eat it. And then where I got to is allow them to trip over, make mistakes, tune into their body. How do you feel? What's been the result when you've had that? And let that then be the catalyst for them to initiate the change. Yeah, it's really important wisdom there. And I've already, even though my kids haven't, aren't at primary school yet, already experiencing that with family and parties and even myself, when you're traveling or on holiday, it's just you can't keep to it. So it's a constant process of surrendering and going, okay, we're doing this in the home. And then when we're out, we're just much more flexible. I'm a little bit challenged at the moment because I'm trying. I'm just at the early stages of wanting to do the gut healing protocol with my eldest. So then how do I create that month or two? That's the trick. But we'll work it out. And I think you just try your best. But I think this is really important for people to hear, especially when you're trying to create that healthy home, how to strike that balance and that surrender. It's really that internal work, isn't it, of going, just coming back to, okay, we're doing our best with what we've got here and we work with the whole situation and the modern context. And A good yeah. mantra is um, that is their journey. So if they do trip up spectacularly, and end up with you know terrible gut health or you know mental health issues because of the poor lifestyle choices they make even though it is so heartbreaking as a mother you've got to step back and go well that is part of their journey i will then try and pick them up and lead by example and you know dust them off but then you know this is ultimately their journey and hopefully yeah. Now, the hope is that they'll one day get it, appreciate it and, you know, make, make the right choices. That's right. And by having too tight restrictions as well, like I remember growing up with some friends who had very, very tight restrictions and they never had access to all that outside junk food. When they got to like 16, 18, they just went mental on it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, allowing it so it's not this weird, mysterious, alluring thing. Yeah. And that's like kind of my phrase healthy swaps came from so I'm all about um, it's not about deprivation it's about healthy swaps so if you want to have um, treats okay let's go home and create them and make them so my entire line of raw treats at broth bar sprouted out of the desire for my children to not feel deprived so you know one day we're at the shops and I wanted to have a carabiner and I looked at the ingredients and went I don't really want you eating you know all those soy lecithins and all of that let's go home and make one ourselves and that sort of forced me to be creative um, and same with, you know, the brothicles. I wanted to have ice blocks when we, we were going outside. And so, like, every single item there is created to fill that void, to fill that gap so that they, I mean, and they still will want to, you know, have an experience, a confectionery because it's just different, but at least they've got access to 
some sweet treat. So that, like, you know, if you cut that off completely, um, that's where I think that, you know, they'll go even more berserk when they step outside the house. But if they've got, you know, good access to really healthy, nutrient-dense cakes and biscuits and chocolates and treats, then they, that will go a long way to meet their fix and feel. Yeah, I love that, healthy swaps, because I do sort of talk about that concept with my daughter. I'm going to use that phrase. We've been making the healthier ice cream, you know, with our homegrown eggs and the cream, and then I'll use some dates and a bit of our homemade vanilla extract. And, and yeah. she'll ask me now, she'll be like, is this the healthy ice cream or is this the sugary ice cream? Is this one good for me? <laughs> so we're just having that conversation. Which, yeah. I don't have a conversation, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really good advice and good for me to hear, I'm sure, many people and something you've got to keep coming back to. So I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your backstory and so how you came to have experienced some health issues and living this fairly common, um, stressful life. And I think I've read somewhere about living a vegetarian lifestyle. I also had similar experience being almost vegan, vegetarian for a long time. I had huge menstrual issues and slowly came around to heal. Um, and it seems to be common that I'm hearing this more and more and obviously not everyone. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about that for you. Yeah, so I grew up in Greek Cypriot migrant um, background. So while we had access to, and I was, you know, the beneficiary of some really beautiful homemade meals, and we you know, grew a lot of our um, own produce and all our herbs, uh, which was wonderful. We also had more than our fair share of conventional food. So I had a glass of Coke with every meal, you know, white refined bread, margarine, um, endless amounts of junk food, no restraint whatsoever on chips, confectionery. <clears throat> so, you know, of course I had all the cavities and I broke bones easily. Um, you know, cystic acne, just, you know, the stuff that we consider is normal in society today because everybody has it. Um, and then I, um, practiced commerce law, uh, worked for a top tier law firm um, in a very high pressure, you know, pressure cooker environment, you know, working, you know, 80 plus hours a week, sedentary lifestyle, you know, more and more fast food, eating out, not getting out into nature at all, hardly sleeping in a relationship I wasn't happy with. So basically the universe conspired to, um, whack me with a big atomic bomb, uh, met with rock bottom and ended up in a hospital bed and was out of action for about two months. And that was, that was when I was um, 26, 1999. So that was like my, my first big wake-up call that I have to do things differently, but I didn't know what differently looked like. You know, back then there were no podcasts and self-help books and, you know, hardly any, uh, you, know, you know, the word, um, you know, mentor or wellness guru was, you know, they, they weren't sort of even in existence. I really didn't know what to do, what to turn to. Um, and I just, my first thing was to turn into nature. So I started, it just felt instinctively and intuitively one thing that I could do that just felt right. So I started bushwalking and getting out into nature. And then that door opened another door, which was yoga. And then I thought, well, okay, um, I'll just really clean up my diet. And I did some really great things. Like I started getting rid of all the processed foods. So that was great. But then on the other hand, I thought, being having a healthy diet was being a vegetarian because the government very much steers us into eating 
a low fat, high grain diet. So I thought if I was a vegetarian eating a no fat diet, high grain diet, I would be super healthy. And at first, of course, you do feel healthier when a lot of people turn to a vegan or vegetarian diet simply by virtue of the fact that you're cutting out all the crap in your diet. Now you're getting rid of all the refined sugar, the refined gluten and all the industrial seed oils. So you start feeling more alive and also your body craves variety. So you're introducing more plant matter and that in and of itself, you know, makes the body hum and, and grow because, you know, you know, we, we, we are designed to have as much diversity in what we eat and what we do. But then after a while, my body started increasingly falling apart. So really, really, really tight, ropey muscles. Um, I had shocking osteoskeletal system. I kept breaking bones. I'd go to yoga class, break a bone. Um, I need bi-weekly osteo appointments, you know, headaches stemming from tight, tight muscles. Then I stopped ovulating, um, severely constipated. Um, you know, when I fell pregnant with my son, I had, I was on a strict vegetarian diet, almost vegan. The baby literally ate me in order for him to be healthy and just kept me barely alive. So major gum recession, eyebrows fell out, eyelashes fell out, hair fell out. Um, and then my little baby boy ended up in hospital at 11 months. We were also raising him as a vegetarian. Um, and at that point, that was kind of like my second really big wake up call. It's like, okay, the shit's hit the fan here. There's nothing like a mother seeing her little baby boy in hospital and you start to think, I wonder if it's the things we're putting in and on our body or not putting in our body that are directly contributing to our health crises. And then that's when, through my naturopath, I came across the works of Dr. Weston A. Price and the power of nutrient-dense traditional whole foods. I really, really resisted the idea of introducing meat again into my diet and I resisted and I resisted for a whole 12 months until I really couldn't resist anymore when I came to understand the science that was behind it and how this science really backed up um, ancestral practices. And when Sally Fallon came to Australia in 2007, um, and I spent a full day uh, with her um, at a lecture. Um, it really blew my mind and I just felt so compelled and so drawn. It was like a light bulb went off and I just, you know, I was pregnant with my second baby, nine months pregnant. I went straight from that lecture theatre to the butcher. <laughs> um, I just felt that, you know, when ancestral wisdom marries up with the science and the science backs that up, that really turns me on. And so I started incorporating these nutrient-dense traditional whole foods into our diet, pastured meats, organ meats, raw dairy, pastured eggs, wild seafood, and started just eating all the things that we were told not to eat while we were pregnant, you know, like oysters and livers and, you know, raw cheese and all this stuff. And I ended up just having a completely different pregnancy, completely different second child, um, just so healthy and robust, completely different. Her facial structure was so different from my son's, like really wide face, broad cheekbones, perfectly aligned teeth, um, never been sick in her life, really, you know, emotionally resilient, physically robust. And I just thought, oh my God, wow, I have these two children. They've got the same genes, same parents, but different epigenetics, different diet. And they turned out so differently. It behooved me to share my story with the world. So 
that's when I started Star Anise Organic Whole Foods. I started blogging, sharing what I learned. I started selling the excess food that I was making to friends and then friends of friends came knocking at the door and then the circle just kept expanding and expanding and expanding um, until one day I sort of was standing in my kitchen making all this pate and casseroles and bone broth and um, sauerkraut and I thought to myself, oh crap, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I can't see myself returning to work as a corporate lawyer. This is where I need to be. This is what I'm called to do. Um, so I just started, um, you know, selling and making this food, you know, out of the kitchen and garage of my home to my friends and, and my community. And then the cooking classes started because women were approaching me saying, what is so special about this food? Why should we be eating it? Can you teach us how to make it? And I felt it was very much my duty, honour and privilege to empower women to be able to make this food themselves. And then the health coaching started and I don't have any formal qualifications. I just basically bundled up all my personal experience, learning and education and put together a very comprehensive yet concise 30-page pack uh, with everything somebody needs to know about what we're designed to eat, where do we get it from, how do you do it most affordably, how do you transition from processed food to an ancestral diet. Um, and that's when I sit down with people in one-on-one -on -one health coaching sessions and go through what I call the fundamentals of robust nutrition. And it basically is a three, half a day, three-hour talk. And then from there, I just felt that I was called to do more group sessions so that I could share my message with a wider audience. So that's when the group food is medicine talks started in 2018. And that's when I teamed up with a holistic dietitian of which there's only like literally two or three in the country um, who is on exactly the same nutritional lifestyle page. And last year we toured, you know, seven cities in in a year and you know we spent a full day educating people on food as medicine and how to basically kick um also the toxins in their home so it's not just what we eat but also really getting women to start thinking about what they're putting in and on their bodies in terms of personal care products and cleaning products so we can't just stop our journey with food it's got to be you know everything we're putting in and on our body and just becoming more conscious of that and where is it ending up in our drains in the oceans and just really being becoming more conscious consumers so after i started you know incorporating all this food and making um, all these lifestyle changes into my mommy's diet, we went from, you know, barely surviving to thriving. So all my health issues just, you know, miraculously vanished, you know, like, you know, clear glowing skin, um, you know, a lot more energy and, you know, vitality, robust immune system. My son never got sick after that, you know, no more rounds of antibiotics. You know, I started ovulating again, um, strong nails. Like, so, so basically all the boxes just in and of their own volition, just all started, you know, being ticked, all just through changing our diet. And that's when I realised just how damn powerful food is and how food can be the most powerful medicine at our disposal. And then, of course, you know, dialing in all those other, um, what I call eight pillars of health, not just nutrition, but hydration, movement, sleep, breath, uh, mindset, getting out into nature and, you know, having a lot of fun play and, and connecting with other people. So, you know, really educating people on those eight foundations of health. Um, so that's um, my journey. And so I've been pretty much eating, you know, what, what I call an ancestral diet or a real foods diet, or I just even like to call it a species appropriate diet. Um, you know, and that, that's basically what, what we eat in my home or how I've been eating over the past 
um, now 13 years and just um, feeling nothing but vibrant health as a result of it. So, and sharing that message with other people and inspiring and empowering them to do the same. Oh, I love it, Sula. It's really inspiring. Really, really inspiring. Because, I, yeah, I cottoned on to the Western A Prior sort of like species appropriate. I love that term because it is. There is a lot of debate and controversy now when we're talking uh, to people who have chosen to have a vegan diet. And I'm open to all of it and vegetarian diet. And you're right, when people first take on a vegan or vegetarian diet, as I did for a while, you feel great. And when you look at it, it's a cleansing diet. So, of course, you're going to feel good. And like you said, you're cutting out the crap. You're having a cleanse. You're going to feel awesome. But then slowly over time. You are. Yeah, it's not fortifying. Fortifying it's not building. Because you need both arms. You need the building and the fortifying and the cleansing and yes. detoxing. If you have more than one than the other, there's going to be an imbalance. So if it's all fortifying and building and not cleansing enough, that is just as bad as if it's all cleansing and not fortifying. So that, you know, balance, that homeostasis is what we really need. And I just listened to a fantastic podcast interview um, of Pete Evans, of, of Joel Salatin, oh, uh, yeah. yesterday. And he talked at length about how we really do need these, the nutrients in animal foods to really fuel the brain and fuel the body. Um, and that was really challenging for me as I was like a really hardcore vegetarian. But it's only until I understood the circle of life that we are intricately a part of. And that, you know, even the most hardcore vegetarian, like Leah Keith, who wrote The Omnivores, um, no, The Vegetarian Myth, you know, she went to, you know, buy some fertilizer for her uh, vegetables and realize that all fertilizers are made with blood and bone so there is no escaping it like it's part of the circle of life every time you pull that carrot out of the ground you are killing billions of microscopic life forces so no we have to really understand that in order to be the best possible version of yourself you need to fuel your body with the foods that can give you the greatest epigenetic expression. Otherwise, you will not be the best possible mum, sister, employee, partner. You kind of, I felt for me, I kind of was like, when I was lying on that hospital bed, it was like, I'm useless to society. I'm a burden on society, okay? So I can't be the best possible version of myself without eating a species-appropriate diet. Mm. It's a simple that. And then we, we really honour the animal. Um, we are privilege to be able to access this food to be able to cook it to revere it to really understand um the life cycle that we are all a part of so it's not something slightly and flippantly um give credit to you know everyone and everything involved in getting every meal to us from soil or sea to plate yeah absolutely and i love that a lot of the time when i'm talking to people and for my own journey as well part of that is that awakening a connection to nature and you even said when you first went on your healing journey you went bushwalking that was like first so you biologically put your body into a natural environment and there's studies to show that if we're inside too much our nervous system doesn't function at optimum and we get outside a natural environment it starts to settle a bit more and starts to balance out and when you start i've studied ecology as well when you look at ecology things eat things we're going to die and bacteria is going to eat us the lion's eating something, the crocodile's eating something, the tiny little rodent's eating something. Some things are herbivores, some things are carnivores, and some things are omnivores. And that's just how we are. That's just our place. And to resist that, we'll create other resistance in health issues. So 
by coming. I, I totally agree. It's just this being of coming back and surrendering to our place within the ecology on earth in a human body. Yeah. That's how we're yeah. biologically wired. And that can be hard because humans are, we're, we're sophisticated and complex and we think about things a lot and we care and we have compassion. So when we're looking at animals, it's easy to go, yeah, that's a terrible farming practice. I don't want to be a part of that. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how when people come to this kind of primal and traditional way of eating, very, it's very much about sourcing ethical food Absolutely. and what that is. So we're looking at things like pasture-raised and local, so looking at what that provenance is yeah. and the locality of our food. And I'd love to hear what that's been for you and how you do that in your business. Yes, yeah, so everything comes down to the provenance of it. The provenance of something affects its quality, so its source and its processing. Because you're right, a lot of, you know, vegetarians or vegans will say, oh, it's so unethical to raise um, chickens and, you know, in, um, you know, in cages and um, cows in feedlots and, you know, fish in pens. And I'm right there with them protesting against that. So, but we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can't say that all practices are like that. So what we are advocating is an ethical and sustainable model of farming. So raising animals in the way that nature intended and giving them the feed that they are biologically designed to eat. So for cows, cows are designed to eat one thing and one thing only, and that is grass. So that's why we ask for 100% grass-fed, all grass-fed and finished cows. And with chickens, they're designed to eat not just grass, but also veggie scraps and seed pods and worms. And um, so we ask for pasture. Are the chickens roaming around on pasture in sunshine, eating what they're biologically designed to eat? Um, the advantage of going certified organic though with chicken and chicken products like eggs and livers is that the grains that all chickens are fed in Australia are um, certified organic grains and not genetically modified because conventional grains will typically contain corn and soy, which are genetically modified by and large. That's the advantage of going certified organic with the chickens. And then with the seafood, making sure that your fin fish are always wild and not farmed. And the problem with farmed fish, they're like the battery hens of the ocean. They're um, fed a really unnatural diet of antibiotics, soy pellets, colour dyes injected into farmed salmon to give it that colour, pink colour. And secondly, the cramped and crowded conditions breed illness and disease. And then that's, you know, these sick animals then, then mean sick humans that eat them. Um, and and uh, so therefore, everything comes down to, you know, to its source and processing. And then also, you know, same goes with fruit and vegetables, just making sure that they're unsprayed. Uh, conventional produce, you know, contains um, glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup, um, which has been shown to be you know, very damaging to the human body, changes our DNA, um, links to uh, cancer. This is another toxin that the body just then has to try to eliminate and that accumulates in our fatty tissues. Um, things like nuts and seeds are often tip and tea, typically heavily sprayed. So always go, you know, pesticide-free, chemical-free or organic. Um, you know, dairy, once again, um, pastured, pastured dairy. And with the animal products, particularly dairy, I do like to get organic because then I just know that the animals are being fed, um, you know, clean feed. So source and processing is absolutely paramount. And what I say to people 
Um, you know, not all meat is the same. Not all chocolate is the same. Not all bread is the same. So when you read a study that comes out saying, you know, red meat is bad for you, it causes cancer, then you've got to look at, well, what type of red meat were those participants eating? You know, if they were eating grain-fed meat, you know, uh, from industrial feed like cow, then, you know, I'm not surprised that it had that result. So we've got to really be careful with what the media are saying and that we're not just repeating it and making it really sticky. And what was the context of the rest of the diet as well? So, you know, there's just one simple fact I like to tell people is that well, animal fats are really high in vitamin A and you need that vitamin A to process your protein. So if you're just having lean meat, lean meat, lean meat all the time, you don't have enough fat, you're drawing on your vitamin A if you even have it circulating in your system. And then you don't have that balance. So you can't even process and assimilate that protein well. And then you're taking vitamin, fat-soluble vitamin A, which is so crucial for so many functions in the body. And so that's just one tiny example of, yeah, if someone's eating lean red meat all the time, they're just eating lots and lots of the protein part. Yeah. What an and nose-to-tail eating. Because then there's the ethical issue of everyone ate lots of meat. But if we were all eating... Animal tail. products, nose to tail, that would be a completely different situation because there's so much waste from the meat industry that then with the farmed fish, I was listening to something the other day, they're getting fed meat meal. So like completely outside of their natural food cycle eating, they could be yeah. eating any sort of like hooved land animal waste product. They're a fish in the ocean. <laughs> so completely backward and topsy-turvy. And yeah. so... If we're eating nose to tail, it's completely different. Kind Absolutely. And it's, it's far more ethical. I mean, if you're really serious about being, you know, waste-free and being, you know, um, ethically minded, we all really should be eating nose to tail. Yeah. And it's so funny. It's just like, you know, of all my online workshops, my organ meat workshop sells the least. People still have the ick factor. Every time I post something on social media, the organ meats get the least like. It's like Australians are still not quite there. Whereas when you go to countries like France, organ meats are so prevalent. Even in the most touristy cafes, there will be organ meats on the menu. There's, you know, the terrines and the sweetbreads and the lamb's brains and the pâtés in like even the cheapest of supermarkets. Mm. Um, Australians are not quite there yet. And I'm fortunate, like I grew up in a household where mum and dad, you know, we did have livers occasionally, not as much as, you know, I would have, um, looking back now, would have liked. And we did, you know, that they made terrines with the whole pig's head and it was something that I thought was just so gross at the time. And now I think, oh, God, I wish I got the recipe for that. Um, it's purely a cultural thing. So that ick factor is something we really need to work on. And... Um, you know, my children would happily eat organ meats until they went to school because they didn't know any different. Like that, they just, you know, they, they would treat organ meats as, you know, versus pate, lamb's brains, all kind of the same to them. And the minute they go to mainstream school and the conversations in the schoolyard, you know, you can see over time that even they have changed their views on organ meats and they're like, ugh, livers, you know. And it makes me so sad because this is the parts of the animal we should be revering. So... You know, our, to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, the organ meats of the animal were the most highly prized part of the animal. They would often discard the muscle meat, you know. So if a hunter-gatherer walked into a modern-day butcher, they would be like, what are you guys eating? We threw out all this stuff. Where's all the good bits? You know, where's the bones, the fats and the organs? Yeah. You know, and that's 
why that's why one of my missions in life is to bring these odd bits back to the modern table to educate people on having bone broth and going back to the balance that you talked about before we should be consuming bone broth every time we have muscle meat and there's a whole body of science around that every time we have methionine rich muscle meat it should be teamed with glycine rich food where's glycine found the bones of animals that balance is really important um, for the body and and that's really being neglected and you know bone broth has really fallen off the wayside in, in the modern diet i'm trying to you know being really instrumental to bring it to bring it back um, ensuring that you know when we have produce you know fruit and veg we're always teaming it with as you said before quality animal fats because the vitamins and minerals in produce are fat soluble meaning they need to be teamed with quality animal fats for those vitamins and minerals to, minerals to be properly absorbed that's why the english have strawberries with cream and the italians have rock melon with prosciutto and closer to my home the cypriots have watermelon with halloumi cheese i mean these couplings didn't occur haphazardly or randomly there was great wisdom in ancestral practices and i think it, it you know sometimes it's the height of human arrogance to disregard that and think we are better than that and think we can just you know make something in a lab and you know eat that and she'll be right but you know if we do that we, we pay with our health yeah it's a huge part of um what i've been looking at as well is that ancestral wisdom to just think that now we're in a modern, quote unquote, modern world, that because certain practices uh, did need to be evolved out of, we needed women's rights and we needed certain things to change from more patriarchal traditional societies. If we go back a bit further, then it's a different story as well. But yeah, we needed to keep moving. And so then we've just discarded everything for the yeah. sake of discarding tradition as being old fashioned, but there was so, there is so much wisdom there and really a lot of it should be kept. And yes, we should keep moving forward and evolving in some areas, but like you said before, throwing the baby out with the bathwater is just so sad and looking at those traditional um, combinations. And that's why, yeah, bone broth was the base of so many meals, so many stews, or if it was a vegetable stew, it was still bone broth. Um, and if meat was had, then you had it there, yeah. So, cultures, all traditional cultures, yeah, had their organ meats, um, you know. Um, and I think when it comes to nutritional ancestral practices, I think our ancestors, particularly you know, pre um, agricultural revolution, really nailed it by virtue of the fact that there were no safety nets back then like there are now in society. So every member of the tribe had to be fit and robust and vital and healthy uh, for the survival of the tribe. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't be a liability on the tribe, you know, you like, like you can now, you know. Um, so they worked out through trial and error over millennia that if their babies ate organ meats as opposed to the muscle meat, um, and if they ate this food as opposed to that food, that would produce a more vital, healthy, robust baby. So it was through trial and error over millennia that they worked out that, you know, we need to have organ meats. We need to, you know, have bone broth. Um, we need to have, you know, eat, eat, you know, eggs and all this really nutrient-rich food because that made for a fitter, healthier, more vibrant person and, and hence contributed to the vitality of the tribe. So yeah. for us to just, you know, disregard that, you know, in some ways I think, we, you know, we've become less civilised than our hunter-gatherer ancestors in that regard. Hey there, I'm Julia. 
I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, totally. And that ties into the work I'm doing with revitalizing postpartum care is that traditional society is new and this is still practiced in many countries people commonly know of chinese postpartum care or indian postpartum care but it was everywhere like i have an old medical text that i've talked about in my podcast and online that was less than 100 years old and it was an english background medical text outlining very clear emotional physical care for the new mother for a month after birth including massage including broths and things like that so it was in every single culture and that's because like you said we didn't have that backup also of the medical society so we didn't have medicine in the same way and we're very lucky to have modern medicine but we didn't have medicine to back us up and to keep us propped up in the same way so it was even more crucial that we maintained thriving health and i've noticed also that when because i've been doing a couple of cooking courses for uh, um for pregnant people, they can come with their partner or a friend um, and I teach them a few different dishes. We do pate and we do stews and I talk about traditional foods. And whenever I get to the chicken liver pate and it's good local mm-hmm. organic chicken liver, I always get a few people going, oh, and they'll try. But that's, yeah, one area that I notice people still a bit icky. Yeah, and I just know um, people treat it like another part of the animal. So I just say yeah. to myself, this is not part of the animal, it's just another part of the animal. And as you were talking, I think um, another ancestral practice that has really fallen by the wayside is this practice of child spacing. Yes. Which I think is just so important. And few, very few people talk about it. In all traditional societies, they would leave a three-year, nine-month gap in between pregnancies to enable the mother's nutritional stores to you know, recalibrate so that she could then provide for a healthy, robust second baby, you know, and, and to also have that bonding time with that first child. So emotionally, that first child gets that emotional nourishment by, you know, being so close and attached to the mother for the first, you know, almost four years of its life and have the mother's, you know, uh, you know almost undivided attention uh, without, you know, a, a newborn, you know, second born, you know, on the mother's breast and, you know, and that's really fallen by the wayside as well. And we're just now, you know, because we're having children are a lot older and we just say, you have this deadline where we just want to pump them all out by a certain age and we put all this pressure on ourselves and you know the, you know women are falling pregnant um, without leaving that sufficient gap and then the mother suffers because her nutritional stores uh, back up and feels just so lousy um, because she's just you know not her nutritional stores aren't back to where they're supposed to be the firstborn suffers emotionally and then the secondborn suffers because you know they're not getting as much nutrients as they otherwise would so i think as a society as a whole it's this is something that we just really don't talk about anymore or, or people it's just it, it, it's not in people's consciousness yeah um, yeah, so I think it's about quite a bit in Chinese medicine. I actually did an Instagram post on it a while back. I wrote child's facing something, something. And it wasn't a very popular post either. And in it, I said, this isn't about guilt. This is about knowledge is power. I had three babies in five years because I started having babies in my 30s. My first passed at birth at full term. So then after that, I was like, well, then I had a relationship that shift and change, new partner. And then when the new partner, I was like, well, I better quickly have some babies. So 
I also experienced that. So it wasn't about putting this guilt or this ideal thing, but we do need to have the conversation. Put the guilt aside. It's not about judgment, guilt, I'm shaming any of this because I didn't adhere to this myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's about bringing to people's awareness the reasons why we as a society aren't optimally, aren't operating as optimally as we otherwise would. And it's just like, oh, that's interesting. That's something I need to share with my children, you know, or my friends. Um, You know, no one's perfect. Oh, my goodness. You know, I've made every mistake in the book, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's no judgment, blame or guilt. And it's it's hard for people to swallow when they read certain things. It's like, oh, that's hit me right between the eyes because I've done the exact opposite of that. And people don't want to then take responsibility that maybe because of their lifestyle choices, their children and themselves aren't as robust as they otherwise would. You know, and I think if we are just a little bit more, you know, self-aware and conscious enough, we can actually, you know, start taking a little bit more responsibility for that. Yeah. And just being humble, going, well, I did the best with what I have, but we can do better as a culture. And I experienced this and I experienced the positives and negatives. So I want to do better for other people and my children and just keep evolving and moving beyond that guilt. Because also a lot of cultures will have a saying, they have lots of different traditional sayings and I love the different sayings that come through with that wisdom. But in um, the Indian postpartum care and I think Chinese as well, they'll have a saying that something along the lines of, so in India it's 42 days rest after baby for 42 years of health. And so that sounds a little bit obscure but when you start looking at the physical science behind that and that when women start transitioning through perimenopause into menopause, Uh, the sex hormones are no longer produced in the ovaries, they're produced in the adrenal glands. So how your adrenal glands have been treated and abused or misused or used through your reproductive years is going to influence menopause. So then you go back to this traditional saying, you're like, oh, okay. So if my nervous system and my physical health was nourished in that time, then I'm going to have an easier transition to menopause. Then it's going, well, maybe I didn't have the perfect postpartum, but what can I do now? Oh, I can eat lots of good fats, which we need for our sex hormones. I can nourish my nervous system with these sorts of breathing or um, certain foods and herbs and, and kind of bringing that into a catch-up. Yeah, and it's never, ever too late. Like the body is always trying and aspiring for homeostasis balance so the greatest i believe this saying the greatest yearning of the human heart is connection the greatest yearning of the human body is balance homeostasis Mm -hmm. so it's always trying to get back into balance if we just get out of its own way out of our own way and allow the body to get back into balance Mm -hmm. um it's it's innate ability to heal and restore and it's i say to people it's never too late i love that i love that so I'd love to, before I jump into the broth bar a little bit and I want to talk about your book, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your Greek Cypriot background, which you've talked about a bit. And so um, we, did you have a chance to go back and go, oh, there were some really interesting recipes there and learn those? And do you incorporate oh, yeah. them? So a lot of my recipes have been inspired from my parents and from my mum, who was an amazing, amazing cook. She had a reputation of being you know, one of the best, if not the best Greek cook on the Gold Coast. So I'm so blessed to have been the beneficiary of, of her amazing creations. So before she passed, um, 
I did manage to get over the years a lot of her basic recipes and then my craft is to then put a whole food spin on them. So I took her basic recipes and then I basically, like anything that had nuts, grains, seeds and legumes in them, they would be properly prepared. I take out all the gluten, um, either completely or sub it with a gluten-free thing. So I just basically, you know, would what I call whole food ties her recipes so I can still enjoy them. Um, and they taste, you know, the flavour is tastes exactly the same, but it doesn't have all the other, you know, crap that I didn't, don't want to eat, like refined gluten, refined sugar. Um, so... Those recipes are very much um, a part of what we do at Broth Bar. They are going to be, you know, will form a part of, you know, one of my books will be, which will be in my cookbook when I finally get around to publishing that. Um, and, you know, a lot of recipes on my website, they're inspired by what my mum and my dad taught me. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. I look forward to the cookbook. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to getting back down to Sydney and coming to the Broth Bar as well. So at the Broth Bar, when I come to visit for the first time, hopefully like sometime in the next six months I'll be getting down to Sydney. When I walk in, what am I going to see? What's on the menu? Yeah. Give us a feel of the broth bar. It's teeny tiny. It's like a little hole in the wall. Um, and so every day we have hot broth, either chicken or beef that you can just have straight from the soup kettle straight up or with what we call broth bombs or flavor bombs just to add uh, extra nutrition and flavor. So things like lemon juice, minced ginger, minced, minced garlic, um, you know, red boat fish sauce, tamari, you know, some young living essential oils. Um, so just, you know, things that you can just add to it to sort of further enhance flavor and nutrition. Um, then we take that um, bone broth, the, the chicken broth, and we make soups with that. So it's the basis of our soup. So then you could have, we always have, you know, some soup, soup of the day, like one or one to three or four, you know, soups of the day. So either um, a classic chicken and veg soup or a chicken noodle soup made with rice noodles or a chicken zoodle soup made with zucchini noodles. There's our green soup, our pumpkin soup, um, a Greek wild fish soup. Um, uh, I think that's yeah make that half a dozen soups and then the other dining meal thing that you can have is the meal of the day so we do one meal of the day which is a really hearty wholesome nourishing meal of the type that your great-grandmother would have eaten so either a slow cook casserole has been slow cooking for you know 15 to 24 hours or we'll do a curry or we'll do a pot roast with a veggie side um, so that's basically what you can sort of dine in or take away. And then <clears throat> there's um, the larder, which is an old-fashioned word for pantry. You can, they're the things that are pre-packaged for you to take home. So you can take home uh, pre-packaged broth. I use the word broth and stock interchangeably. <clears throat> so you've got chicken, beef, fish, or a vegetable broth, or the broth-based soups, um, chicken with a pate. Um, we... Uh, make frozen cubes with our tallow. So beef tallow is a natural fat. It's the fat that rises on top of beef broth. So we basically scoop that off, pour it into silicon moulds, and then you've got these really nifty, convenient little cubes that you can throw into your frying pan to cook meat. It comes from the very animal you're cooking, so it's perfect for frying meat. And um, we make bone broth cubes, so frozen not the tallow part, but the actual protein broth part, beef cubes that you can throw into smoothies or throw into a saucepan to um, 
prevent food from sticking at the bottom of the saucepan or to just, you know, um, add to baby's food to, you know, make it a little bit more watery or mums love putting a muslin around a broth cube and then babies suck it when they're teething. And then the broth cubes also come with, um, is another packet with spinach. So half spinach, half beef to throw into smoothies, just if you're wanting to add some green um, or you can add them to, you know, a soup or a meal or a risotto. Um, then we've all got pre-packaged all our ferments, our fermented veggies. So sauerkraut, a few different flavours of sauerkraut, two types of fermented drinks, bikavas and kombucha. We've got brothsicles, which are basically ice blocks made from coconut milk, dates, um, beef broth, and you don't taste it when it's frozen. And then we flavour it with either raw cacao or raspberry or mango. Yum. And then a line of raw treats and then Australia's largest range of activated nuts and then wow. we'll often do like a cake or um, a panna cotta or some biscuits or some type of little treat you can have so it fits four people on the bench inside if you want to eat inside there's a big table outside with a rug that you can sit on uh, or then you, or you can just take away so and all the food prepared in-house so the kitchen is it's, it's all done in-house, so all the food is made from certified organic ingredients that are traditionally prepared on-site using ancestral methods, um, and we wholesale to a few um, stockists in Sydney and Wollongong as well. And we've got an online store, um, so you can check that out at staranisorganic.com, but the vast bulk of our business is, is people walking, people walking in off the street. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it sounds delicious. I can't wait to get there. Fantastic. What a great space and access to just healthy food. And then when you create that sort of space, it's community as well. You're creating like a little hub of community. I love our community. I had no idea that that just would be such a beautiful byproduct that, you know, if I wanted something like this, there, you know, I wanted this food and, and access to this food, then surely other mums would too. So I just love the beautiful community that we've created um, and it's just become a really beautiful hub for a lot of people. Mm, oh, that's so fantastic. I love it, Sula. So also you're an author <clears throat> and you've written a book um, about school lunches, which I'm, I've been thinking about a lot lately because my eldest is going to school in a couple of weeks. I've been experimenting with things. It's very different from when in home having lunch and things like that to then what am I going to pack? Yeah. And how is that going to go down over the years compared to a friend's lunches? Um, so, yeah, you've written a book about that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a short little ebook. You can get it online um, from my online store, a school lunch inspiration ebook. Um, and also every day, pretty much. Uh, on social media, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, every time I pack my kids' lunches, I would take a photo of it and post it to give mums inspiration so that they can see, well, this is what my kids are having um, in their lunchbox. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be taking a closer look at that to keep motivated and inspired so it doesn't feel like a drag trying to... Because <laughs> you got to keep it... And also, I think, involving my daughter. I'm going to try and involve her more. Yeah, so just this past year or two, like my daughter's just turned 12. She's now taken more responsibility and wants to pack her own lunch. So I'm oh. teaching her having that balance of, you know, vegetables with protein. So she'll just mm. fill it with vegetables. I'm like, well, where's the protein part? So, you know, so, and then how much protein? So she will, like, you know... 
make the veg, make the lunchbox and go, mum, is this okay? You know, so that's what it's carrying her because she's not often, like she's not always with me. So when she's not with me, it gives me comfort that I know she knows what she should be eating and the balance that she should be eating it in. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. And I noticed that you've got, and you've mentioned it a few times, you've got a really strong zero waste ethic, which I love because I also, um, so I have a background in like permaculture and um, waste and so that more environmental community development stuff too. And I teach, um, I work with a not-for-profit called Midwaste. They're just here on the mid-north coast and we do food waste and we do composting and all that sort of thing. So I love it when I see a business that's incorporating that as well. And that seems like a really strong underlying ethic for you is the zero waste food. Yeah, always has been. And I've even got that from my group parents, you know, yeah. like they're like that growing up, you know, we had all these hacks in the house that, you know, I look back at them now and go, oh my God, that was so onto the environmental stuff. Like little things like, you know, we would always have buckets in our showers to collect all the water and then you use that water to water your plants. I mean, you know, Australia's going through like the worst drought at the moment and it just really hit home. Oh my God, you know, we should be doing that. And my dad would direct the, the, um, water from the washing machine out onto the, you know, the uh, plants to water them at the end of the cycle. So it, we'd have, I'd grow up with all these little little hacks and not waste anything. And um, you know, I don't really peel, um, you know, organic veggies if I don't really need to. I use up everything. Um, if you can compost, that's awesome. Um, everything that we get at Brockba is all, you know, biodegradable. You know, you know, virtually zero impact. Mm. And you know, if we all did that, you know, it would just, you know, if people think, oh, I'm too small to make an impact. Well, if everyone had that attitude, then, you know, that, that's why we've got ourselves into this situation. That's right. Yeah. And I like to tell people, well, food waste, this is like my workshops coming through. So food waste would be, if it was a country, it'd be the third largest emitter of um, greenhouse gases. So it's huge. And then in Australia, we waste on average. So everyone's household is going to be different depending on where they're at. But on average, we waste one in five shopping bags full. That's a lot of food. And really, again, it's going back to that traditional wisdom. So yeah, I talk to my nan and you talk to your parents. And it's not that long ago that that was just ingrained in our culture. Of course, you didn't waste food because you didn't have enough to waste. Food was so precious. Yeah. So it's sort of reweaving that back in. Um, and now, yeah, with horrible fires and devastating, but, you know, the climate issues and ecological issues that we've been going through for some time, it can feel really overwhelming and disempowering. And I think as people become mothers, they become a bit more heightened to the world mm -hmm. that they bring their children in and they want to be able to do something. And just doing that little bit in your home of zero waste, composting is the last step. So trying to, you know, minimise yeah. that waste as much as possible and then composting is the last step. If everyone did that, like you said, if every average, if the average household's wasting one in five bags, if everyone stopped wasting that, and then like also in this area, we there was an audit done on the red bins because we can't put food waste into our green bin here yet. Some councils you can. Um, and 50% of what was going into the red bin to rubbish to landfill was organics. So if everyone stopped that, yeah. So those two things, it's, it's such a huge, um, huge, huge impact. With Greek migrant parents who <laughs> Cyprus because of poverty, yeah. I was really ingrained. We do not leave anything on our plate, like not even half an olive. Like we had mm -hmm. to eat it or it was put in a container 
and we would have it the next day. So what I do now is whatever doesn't get eaten at say dinner all goes into a glass Pyrex container. And then the next day for my lunch, I just put that in a saucepan and pour hot broth onto it. I love it. And hot veggies, it just becomes an instant soup. Yes. It doesn't feel like having leftovers because it's a completely you know, different form. So all those leftover veggies just go into a hot broth. So, yeah. Or they go into an omelette. You know, there's lots of things that you can do with it. And if it's leftover raw veggies, then I'll just throw them into a salad. So I'm always like, I very, very rarely, if at all, would real food go into my bin. It's just, it just gets, we'll just eat it the next day. And it's and about having just, those simple things on hand. I love that you said omelette and broth because they're my two favourite. I say to people who've just got some eggs for an omelette or you have, just always have a jar of broth. Always have some have broth there. Egg. There's staples that I always have in my fridge. Yeah. And then don't buy too much at a time yeah. with produce and, and then it goes, you know, and if things are starting to wilt, then make a bone broth and throw all that stuff in or... Yeah. You know, just steam them up or, you know, make make, make a big root uh, veggie medley tray and just, you know, juice them up, you know, mm. just use them in some way. Mm. And fermenting, if people get into fermenting veggies, then that's a great way to be popping in some extra herbs or a little bit of um, extra vegetables as well and preserving. Yeah. yeah and I'm if I'm going to throw something out, like I started making some nut milk because my, my son's on a gut protocol is off dairy for a bit so I'm like making some nut milk and then all this pulp is left over so now I'm experimenting making and nailing um you know nut pulp cookies it's like damn if I'm gonna throw that out I'm gonna find a way to use that and that's how I use my creativity to um, become zero waste awesome I saw that post of yours actually this morning I went on to have a look um of your recent posts and I, I have a similar recipe online for uh, lactation cookies. If people want grain-free, then do the almond milk and then use the pulp to make the lactation cookies. So okay. they're delicious. You do have to play around with the combos depending on how well you squeezed it out, like the ratios, but it doesn't matter if they're crumbly. And then you just make them stick together better next time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sula. So much inspiration there. My absolute pleasure. And so also what I'm really interested in before we um, wind up is I'd love to hear, I'd love for you to share where people can find you, but you're also offering health coaching. And so it really kind of pricked my ears up when you said you didn't have any formal training. And the reason is sort of like a personal interest one because lately I've been thinking, well, my next step is I really want to be working with mums, maybe leading up to pregnancy or in postpartum, getting ready for postpartum, but also then how that trickles out to their family oh, maybe I should go study to be a health coach. Oh, that's another thing I have to study. And then when you said, well, you just took your collection of like over a decade of knowledge and you put that together. And I really like that because you're valuing your own experience. You're valuing your own knowledge. It's not like you have to keep outsourcing. And that's what you've done. So, so well, tell us a little bit. Me constantly it's like what do I have for breakfast what do I have for lunch what do I have to dinner? where do you buy this from where do you buy that from how do I you know what's a healthy swap for this to that like they were asking me constantly and so I just thought you know what I'm just gonna like you know put it all together and you know my background in commerce law I'm very good at summarizing and making things really coherent and easy for people to understand so I just put together a pack with all these different fact sheets on what people need to know that took me two decades to work out. It's just all laid out for you, all there on a silver platter. And I'm just really upfront with people and say, well, this is what I do. This is what works for me. If 
within three to six months of nailing this diet and other lifestyle factors, you are not looking and feeling your absolute best, then let's go to an integrative practitioner. Here's the list. And let's get some tests done. Let's get you know your bloods done. Let's look at your hormones. Let's look at gut microbiome. Let's see the lay of the land. And then we work with... So then I basically am a generalist. And then I've got my suite of practitioners that do the bio-individual stuff. So it just works really, really well. And as I said earlier, in 99% of cases, when people nail the diet and other lifestyle factors, all their health issues and all the little canaries in the coal mine, they all go away. And the 1% of cases where they don't, then that's when they'll go and get when work with an integrative practitioner and iron out that gut dysbiosis or, you know, iron out, you know, their autoimmune condition and things like that. So, um, you know, that seems to work. So on my website, starrandisorganic.com, there's a health coaching um, page there. So you can work with me. Um, we do, uh, you know, one half a day session where I basically go through everything with you or we can break it up into a number of smaller sessions. Or if that price is cost prohibitive, you could come to a group food as medicine talk. Um, so you get exactly the same information at a fraction of the price and you get to hear Marika Roddenstein, Australia's Living Holistic Practitioner talk and, you know, you're immersed in a tribe and you get beautiful free organic whole foods lunch. So there's a couple of different options there. Um, and you can also enroll, you know, in, I do cooking classes um, from time to time. And I've got five online cooking classes. So bone broth, organ meats, slow cooked, uh, gluten-free baked cakes and chocolate. So a lot of people, um, you know, just what would like to do, um, you know, a cooking class in their own home. They get access to a lifetime video and the recipe booklet. So it's as though they'd attended a real life cooking workshop. And I think if you can really, you know, make a really good bone broth, makes, you know, some good slow cooked recipes, um, can have a few organ meat recipes under your belt. You know, you know how to make a couple of gluten-free cakes and some really amazing quality raw dark chocolate. I mean, you're kind of really much set, aren't you? I mean, that, that's, you know, that, that's what you need. Totally. Yeah. Like you said, like, I love that you've identified that you're a generalist and getting people on track with this sort of primal ancestral diet. And if there's more issues, then you send off. But by doing that, they're part of the way there anyway. So those other issues with the specialists are going to be so oh. much easier. It's going to be so much faster. Because they've yeah, already got themselves. Working with me, because it's like you've done, you've done, you know, a, a lot of our, our work for us. Yeah. You've, you, don't, you don't have to worry about lifestyle issues. The lifestyle issues have been dialed in. Yeah. You know, all I've then got to do is a blood test, gut microbiome, hormone testing, tweet and then have a look and tweak that. So, you know, if that, that's why, you know, the world needs, in a way, more health coaches, just to, mm. to iron out all these lifestyle issues. Mm. Yeah. And let the integrative practitioners really home in on what they are really good at. Yeah, and helping people stay on track because I think that's the hardest thing is, you know, forming new habits. Yes. It takes a while. It takes a while to, like, yeah. retrain our brain and our actions yeah. and our habits. And so to have, like, a health coach-like person and then a group, if you're in a group, it really helps to support that. And especially, you can't always do that. Yeah. yeah. But when people start seeing the changes, they start looking and feeling better. Like for me, that was my catalyst. It's like, well, why would I go back to, to where I was? You know, mm. if I'm looking 
feeling amazing, you know, and I've dropped excess weight, my energy levels have soared, I'm fitter, faster, stronger, you know, and, and, the, and the thing is, this food is so delicious, you know, you're having bacon and eggs for breakfast, yeah. I don't have, you know, the cardboard cereal with soy milk anymore, like I was doing high fives, it's like, yay, bring it on, like when people start eating this food, because saturated fats, you know, it's so satiating and tasty, it's not a hardship at all, like I feel like I eat like a king three meals a day. No, it's a pleasure to eat the way that I eat. So, you know, for me, that's kind of, you know, that and how I felt after I ate it was the catalyst to keep me going. But, yes, I agree. Some people do need a little bit more hand-holding and support um, to, to keep them on track. And that's where I do work with someone who really specialises in that and we work together and she takes on board my clients to make sure their hands are held the whole way through if they need that. Yeah, I love that. But yeah, it's such delicious food. I think it was my most recent podcast. Um, Helen Marshall said, well, when you're running mostly on fat for energy rather than these empty carbohydrates and sugar, it's akin to if you had a fire, you're putting a big log on the fire. Or if you're just putting little sticks and bits of paper on with the carbs and sugar and it's just burning. Exactly and the analogy I use in my medicine talk. So every time you, you know, think of saturated fat, I say think of saturated fat as like throwing a log on a fire. That fire, that log is going to keep that fire going for a good five to seven hours till you need to throw another log on a fire. You should be able to go five to seven hours in between meals. If you can't, your meal is not big enough or nutrient dense enough or something is happening to your body where you're not properly absorbing all those wonderful nutrients. Yeah. You know, carbohydrates as like throwing paper on a fire. You're going to stand there all day. This was me as a vegetarian, throwing paper on that fire. I don't know about you, but I've got better things to do than be <laughs> eating all day. Like as a vegetarian, every two hours I had to eat, I had to revolve my day around where I was, you know, around food because I couldn't get caught more than two hours without food. Whereas now, you know, I've, when my kids are away, I drop down to two meals a day. You know, mm. I, I have these big seven, eight, nine hour stretches in between because the food is so satiating, so nutrient dense. It just keeps me going for longer. And it's yes. great, it freaks me out, but I'm not spending, you know, so much time in the kitchen. Yes, more time for life. I love it. And, like, yeah. it's a little bit different, obviously, postpartum when you're just the early postpartum. Oh, different feeding. Yeah. But absolutely. even so, like, I notice so my uh, youngest is two and a half and I'm still breastfeeding a little bit. And some nights she'll breastfeed more than others if she's teething or something. And so I do wake up a bit more hungry, very, very different to early postpartum. I put that in a totally different category. But even now... I'll notice that if I wake up and I just have a, jar, a glass of broth, I don't, my hunger is gone for a long, long time, even with that extra yeah. hunger from the breastfeeding. So, yeah, yeah it, it's got so much benefit to it to be bringing yeah, that extra Breastfeeding and pregnant, you are sucking up nutrients at such a fantastic rate. So it's so important that you are nourishing your body with these nutrient-dense traditional whole foods. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to collapse and crumble. So and we don't want that in society. We want to be really supporting our mothers, you know, with nutrient-rich foods. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Sula. I have just loved hearing your passion and your inspiration and what you've created through your own experience for you, yourself and your family and as a business. It's really inspiring. So people can find you at Star Anise Whole Foods, Star Anise Organics. Star Anise Organic.com. Organic. So www.staranisorganic, just no S, .com. Yeah. 
and Instagram saying, and I'll put all these links in the show notes. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I really hope there was something there for you. Please feel free to head on over to Instagram and Facebook pages, Pollination Mamas, and leave your thoughts, ideas, inspirations, feedback. I'd also really love for this to partly be a collaborative experience for all of you out there listening and to hear what topics, uh, ideas for guest speakers that you might have. And also, if you feel to, I would really appreciate if you head on over to iTunes, Anchor FM and the other platforms and left a review for the Pollination Mamas podcast. This helps for the podcast to be seen more and to get the word out there of these topics that we're all discussing to a larger audience. I found podcasts so helpful to feel a bit more connected to ideas that I didn't realize were um, so common amongst us all so yeah also feel free to share with anyone out there that you feel may gain something from this i also have a sign up on my website pollinationmamas.com where i send out approximately a monthly mail out with latest podcasts sales on my small batch largely homegrown herbal products latest workshops and other thoughts and ideas that i might pop up on the blog occasionally So thanks again for tuning in and hope to have you listening again soon.